Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the online chatter, real world mayhem episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast, an associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. Fears of citizens spreading and consuming disinformation on social media was a big concern before the 2020 election. After Trump's defeat, he used both traditional and digital media to spread the big lie of a stolen election. But since the January 6th riot on the Capitol, much of it organized online, people are asking questions again about online communities and political activism, concerns over how to combat online radicalization, once a feature of ISIS recruitment, are now gaining steam amid calls for deprogramming right-wing extremists fueled by disinformation in the US and around the world. Can a democracy survive when online conspiracy theories motivate real-world political mobilization, such as the attack on the Capitol? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by my colleague and returning podcast champion, Dr. Jessica Baer. Jessica is a lecturer and co-director of the Cybersecurity Initiative at the Henry M. Jackson School for International Studies here at the University of Washington. She teaches classes on cybersecurity, U.S. foreign policy, and cyber activism. With her colleagues at the Cybersecurity Initiative, Jessica has translated evidence into action regarding the legal and regulatory frameworks around protecting critical infrastructure in the U.S. and abroad. As you may remember, Jessica joined me for an episode before the election where we discussed the cyber intrusion threats to the 2020 elections. Today, I wanted to have Jessica on to discuss a different but related area of her expertise on cyber issues regarding how communities of like-minded people form online and then organize politically, a topic she explores in her book, Expect Us, Online Communities and Political Mobilization. Hello, Jessica Bayer. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, James. Listeners can find this episode and previous episodes on our Anchor page, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast by searching for Neither Free Nor Fair. Please subscribe and leave a review. And if our listeners have any questions for us, they can always email us at uwpoliticaleconomyforum at gmail.com. Please give us your name and where you're from. And we have two questions that I will intersperse in today's episode uh, that I will post to Jessica that came in um, uh, in advance of her appearing today. But first, Jessica, let's walk through exactly how the January 6th riot was aided by online communication, as I think a lot of this narrative has been lost in the subsequent discussion about the second impeachment and just a desire to kind of move on. Um, yeah, I think that so there's a lot of there's like so many different ways that we could talk about that, right? Like the internet is sort of like this giant ball facilitated what happened on January 6th in a ton of different ways. Um, so I would probably highlight maybe three different um, three different things that I think are key. Um, the first is that we underpinning what happens on January 6th is, years of building an alternative media infrastructure online. So um, people like Becca Lewis have talked about this in relation to YouTube, which is, you know, we have this, you know, set of alternative media figures who are occupying different types of social media platforms and are putting out so quote unquote alternative media in alternative in relation to the what they call the mainstream media or what many of us call the mainstream media, but also alternative in that they're putting forth um, what we would consider to be pretty fringe ideas about um, political processes and society itself. And in that ecosystem, there's both people who are like really fringe and then there's people who are less fringe and the less fringe people um, give validity to the really fringe people by appearing on their shows, by engaging with their ideas. And so um, people, you know, 
are sort of can be pulled into this set of very credible sounding you know, experts or people controlling these platforms who are talking about really a very different way of thinking about, um, about, you know, political processes in the United States. And, you know, I think an example of that actually is an example from a conversation that you and I were a part of uh, about cybersecurity before the election in which you were like, you know, the, the day to really worry about is January 6th. And that had not ever occurred to me, for instance, but sure enough, right, they were talking about that as a as you know, this is a, this major day on in those places. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the, you know, tied to that, we have also years of spreading, you know, conspiracy, you know, theories or ways of thinking about the world and about politics in this country, um, mis and disinformation, both about the left as well, you know, also about the government, about particular political figures, about election processes in the United States, like this idea that somehow Mike Pence could stop. Um, what was happening, you know, on January 6th, you know, that's being pushed through social networks. It's referential to these, this sort of media ecosystem, but also is going to be more personal, right? Like people pushing it to other people that they know. Um, we also see, you know, major figures like President Trump himself helping to push some of these claims like about election fraud. And then the third thing I would highlight is that on the day of about the day of January 6th is just the sort of mundane type of organizing that has to go into a big event, right? So we see um, people using social media to coordinate all kinds of things, including things like carpools, right? Like that, that sort of like basic, how do you get people somewhere? How do people know that other like-minded people are gonna show up so they're not the only person there with like their giant queue on a stick? Um, all of that also would have been happening through, um, through this, you know, this big set of platforms, not, you know, Twitter, Facebook, certainly, but also other things like Parler and, you know, Gab and whatever. Jessica, let me ask you about that. I mean, this is going to sound fatuous, but like, I, I'm literally curious, like, I'm, I'm really legitimately curious. So when these people show up, at, at, at like January 6th, so they show up at a rally, and they don't, like you said, they don't want to be the only person with a Q sign, they've met online, and then like, did these people know each other? Like, did they even know to like, like the, the QAnon shaman, like, did he have a reputation? Like people are like, oh, I've met you before. Or, I mean, the, the way in which it goes from online to real world is so curious to me. Like, did those people know each other on January 6th? Uh, well, I mean, I think like the QAnon shaman, he had showed up for, at a bunch of different protests, right? And I, you were talking, I think we're talking about like a mix of different types of people. So. There's people like him who are like spectacle, right? He shows up at these different things. Um, um, he's a known figure. I mean, there were jokes after it, like the police were asking for information on him and people were like, look, he's been in the news, you know, ever many times, you just Google his QAnon shaman. Um, there's also gonna be groups like um, the more organized, like sort of um, I, violent organized paramilitary type groups that are, um, of course, would know each other. They're like training for um, what they think some sort of violent insurrection or violent, you know, conflict that's going to happen. And those networks, they would be networked together. So there would be some people who know each other, but also a broader network of those people. But then I think, you know, your questions about the, you know, the people who all show up wearing red and with their signs and whatever, um, you know, how do they plug into that? So, um, no, they don't all, some of them know each other, right? But not all of them know each other. And much like 
um, any other protest, there's going to be this sort of swelling of camaraderie around it. Um, there's going to be sharing online of the fact that people are going to go there. People usually will start sharing information. Like if you go wear red, much like we saw with like the hats on the women's protest in January 2017, um, you're going to see. Um, so you're going to see this sort of information dissemination also around how to protest. Usually you see that. I don't know in this case if we did see it. Usually it's like how to protest legally. In this case, I don't know that that happened. Um, and but then there's often you'll see. So I don't in this instance, I have not seen this, but in other instances, like the one of the cases in my book, which is the mobilization of anonymous, this sort of emerge out of 4chan, which is this very anonymous online space. No one use, has a username. Um, it's very um, offensive, the content. You know, you see people talking afterwards about how they got there and it was so amazing to see people there with the same, you know, um, masks and the same like language on their signs. And so also the, the sort of cultural trademarks that develop in those communities, people just will bring them with them and, and put them out there, right? So, um, and then once they do it once, um, that also then will propel them the next time they do it as well. It's so, so like the woman who died, who I think was from San Diego, um, you know, though I think the, there's the woman who was from Houston or Dallas who had like had a chartered plane. There were obviously sort of supporters of the president who were meeting um, at his hotel in DC. Like, did they, have they met on, did they potentially know each other online, have seen who they really are online and this is the first time meeting them? as well, like, because they're not all from Washington, DC. I mean, they're not always from wherever the play, the protest is happening, they're traveling there. So would they have met each other online potentially beforehand? And this is like the first time they see each other in person? Yeah, there would definitely be some of that too, right? Like you see any type of online community, you see people doing that, like they meet each other in real life for the first time in some sort of physical gathering. The other thing though, is that if you, come out of like a, a place with a set of like cultural, you know, artif artifacts or to characteristics like, you know, the MAGA hats or whatever, right? You see someone else wearing that and it's a signal that you're part of the same group even if you haven't actually met each other. And so you'll often see people like greet each other as if they are, there is some connection there, right? Um, yeah, so I think it's probably, you're, it's just gonna be a huge mix of all different things. So how do people, how do these people find each other online? Like literally talk us through, you know, like my parents don't even know what Twitter is, but you know, they've heard of Facebook. They don't know what Twitter is. They're not on 4chan and Parler and all these things. Like how do these people even learn about this stuff? Were all of these people like on, I, you know, instant messenger in the nineties and then it just like the internet evolved. So they evolved into these things. Do you just wake up one day and like you read a thing about Parler and decide that's where you're going to go open a, a social media account? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it depends on, you know, this particular instance like plugs into a sort of long arc of partisan politics in the United States, right? That also has other elements like that, you know, social media is left-leaning. I mean, you see there's sort of this proliferation of um, people making the argument on the right um, that, so there's like a broad set of arguments that are being made about um, the online world. And the people might, so some people might find out about Parler because it shows up in a news report 
um, you know, in the mainstream media, right? This is where like Ted Cruz is now because he hates Twitter because it's too left leaning or whatever. And that that's gonna draw people in. This is why um, scholars like Whitney Phillips are like, we need to be really careful about when we report on these like fringe um, groups or conspiracies in the media that reaches a lot of people about how we talk about those things because you don't wanna actually inadvertently recruit um, people right. to more extremist views through the way we report on it. There's also gonna be other people who are like in some of those places and are then gonna be um, exposed to the ideas, right? But the, the different places are gonna have very different audiences in different ways that happens, right? So like on 4chan, right, we have, there's a board there called the Politically Incorrect Board, um, you know, where the, con the, the content there is, is terrible. The, and there's a very, academics have sort of mapped out like categories of, political arguments that are being made there about, you know, the sort of like alt-right ideas, right? Like anti-globalism, anti-immigration, anti-feminism. And the people in those spaces are going to be sharing information and maybe um, being convinced by those arguments. But if they want to mobilize, usually people don't mobilize in those spaces. They'll move out to, um, you know, places where it's easier to connect, right? Like, you know, like Messenger, right? Um, or um, some sort of platform like that where they can message with each other. Or if you want to disseminate disseminate ideas out to a broader community, you know, you want you're going to want to use YouTube or Twitter. So it's going to be a lot of different things happening. You know, it's just going to probably depend on things like the demographics of the per people who are there and um, the types of platforms that they show up on and the ways in which they're being given that type of information. And then once that they're sort of like exposed into a set of arguments this is the same for everybody right like maybe you start to go out and like google those arguments but if you're given particular terms for understanding things then google is going to reproduce that content for you right because that's what it's supposed to do it's supposed to give us what we need or you know there's this idea um, of a data void um uh, Dana Boyd, and I'm forgetting her co-author's name, talk about this where sometimes there's topics where there's no information out, out there about it. And so that creates this perfect space for someone to step in and create the information that will come up on YouTube. So I'm not, I feel like I'm not talking about this super coherently, but there's also just the difference between like the people who are like out there trying to convince the more organized, like activist type people. And then like, like Joe Schmo, who's like, you know, mad about what they think's happening in the country. And they're being, you know, people are using all kinds of marketing and recruiting tactics to try and get information to that guy. So that guy then like Google's question about like, you know, QAnon set of keywords who then they'll then like get fed into that sort of informational universe. Well, Jessica, I think this, this touches on a question we got from Anna, a listener in Helsinki, Finland. And her question is, why do people believe all kinds of horse and then poop emoji. Um, <clears throat> we're trying to keep it clean. The family show here. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and this is not a this is not a question for you as a as a kind of tech nerd, but just as a social scientist. Why do people believe nonsense? You know, there's two different ways to think about this, right? I guess there's like a sort of you know, you're eight years old and somebody's screaming something at you. I mean, you know, you're not asking for it, and so you you know, somebody tells you something, and then you're like, oh, okay. But there's people who like literally are looking for it right? Just go down, like you said, just like go down these holes where it gets worse and worse. But why? Like what in the human psyche drives people in that direction? I mean, is, the, is it, you, you said that the, the, the internet is like a ball, but is it like a black hole? Like, is it just sucking these people in? Like they're dancing around the edge and then they're, they just get sucked in and they can't help it? 
Yeah, well, I guess I would say like people believe all kinds of garbage, right? Like we all believe, everybody probably believes something stupid or something that's terrible or is illogical or I, my question always is why, when, why do people then act on it? Like we, like we, I know people who are like 9-11 truthers, you know, but none of them were like out there on January 6th. Like what, what is it, when is it that the belief in like the the fringe theory becomes causes someone to go out and like violently storm the Capitol building, for instance, right? And I think that's a really hard question that I it's a broader question about politics too, right? Like, you know, I've you know been doing research in like Facebook parenting groups trying to understand like how bad information spreads there. And you know, I'll be in groups where people are like, you know, they are absolutely, you're not allowed to say anything that's anti-vaccine, but like then people will talk about like, you know, using sort of very like new age methods to get rid of teething pain. And it's like, I'm like, how do those two things coexist, right? But those people aren't like out there protesting at vaccine sites. So like, where, where is the bad, where does the bad idea cause the mobilization? You think that's a good example. I think my father, my father's mother, so my grandmother was British, and I think he claims that she, her, what she, the the sort of folk theory that she grew up with, very poor, very very poor in England, was what helps teething pain for young children is like brandy. I, how much is this? Um, and I've heard mommy blogs and the mommy wars waged on the internet are like some of the most vicious. How much of this is people just seeking those kind of cultural myths that we're born with, um, as opposed to like, I mean, obviously my grandmother could have gone to a doctor. Obviously women today could go to a doctor to ask them the question. Um, are they kind of engaging in this as like a kind of a cultural um, inheritance of folk wisdom? And is Facebook now just the way that our society transmits that as opposed to my dad, like hearing this from his mother, you know, back in the 20th century and then sort of saying that as a joke today. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. Uh, my grandma, I told my parents, my grandma, who's, a, she, she was like second generation or third um, American immigrant, um, to rub sugar and cheesecloth that had been soaked in brandy on baby's gum. Ooh, that sounds I, uh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, I was like, my parents, I've actually never gotten an answer about whether they actually tried that or not. But I think so, this is like one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and working on a lot right now in relation to these questions about mothers in particular is that there are a lot of decisions or things that we have to try and understand in which there is no certainty about um, what we should do. So um, if you're, parenting is a, is a good example in the sense that like there's scientific consensus around vaccines and it is, there's not a lot of wiggle room in that consensus or there's no wiggle room in that consensus, I should say. Um, but there's a lot of topics where there aren't, there isn't that consensus. So things like how to deal with teething pain, for instance, doc, some doctors will tell you that you can give them Tylenol. Some will say that it's, you, there's no point in giving them anything. Um, there's other topics like that, that are like hot topics, like sleep training. Um, you know, people, it's like banned in some forums because the fights will get so vicious around it. And one of the reasons for that is, is that there isn't any scientific consensus. There's literature, scientific literature on both sides of the argument around, should you let your child learn how to sleep by themselves by letting them just cry? Or is that inherently damaging to your child because you're letting them cry before they have object permanence, right? So which is understanding if something goes away, it comes back. 
Um, and there's no scientific consensus. So when something that there's scientific consensus around coexists with other very questions that feel very pressing, where there isn't scientific consensus, then the lack of scientific consensus in those areas, I think, touch the things that do have consensus. And then but you have, it, sorry, you sorry. have people come in with like very, you know, like, you know, anti-vaccine rhetoric, for instance, is very sophisticated. They use all kinds of scientific terms. They use, um, you know, that are hard for people to argue. They have sort of sets of arguments that are are used. And I think any of us who has like a family member who like spends a lot of time listening to talk radio has experienced that too, where they'll come to you with a, like an, a political argument and it's, you're like, this is wrong, right? But I, it's hard to figure out like where the insertion point is because there's like evidence and there's like, you know, argument lines and rebuttals and all of this and very effective messaging like that is going to come and sort of empower the people who've been exposed to it in that way. Well, I was going to say the great irony is the strength of science is precisely what you identify, which is that when there is not consensus, science gives you the process to keep testing, check for confounds, check for heterogeneous treatment effects, experiment here, check in this country versus that, you know, science gives you the way to move towards consensus and science is comfortable not having consensus because there's a lot of reasons why there may not be consensus. I mean, if, if something hasn't been tested yet, there can't be consensus around it, right? So that's the great strength of science. And it sounds like what you're saying is then when science doesn't have consensus, that's when people would turn to, you know, whether it's like a cultural myth on something or that's when they would just turn to some other source of information that sort of helps them resolve that. But that source of information is not science usually, yeah. or in this case, it's, it's just, oh, well, what is my, what is potentially, what does my culture say? Or what did my grandmother say? Or what is my, you know, the friend of my mom group say? Or what does Rush Limbaugh on the radio say? You know, well, what is some other, source of uh, information do to help me resolve that debate that science is having. That's a healthy debate to have. Well, and I think too, you know, the, the truth is also that a lot of, it's like we, there's been this, how do we like challenge, say, um, you know, questions around voter fraud, right? The, the temptation is to make absolutist arguments, right? Like to say vaccines are 100% safe when every once in a while someone does have a reaction to them and it's usually they're fine, usually. Um, because of the, the thought or that there's no voter fraud at all. When really, you know, we know that democracy is messy and there's always like a little bit of slide in there, right? And that doesn't mean that elections aren't valid or that they aren't, um, you know, you know, haven't occurred with almost no voter fraud, right? And I think that we have kind of gotten to this difficult place where like, any sort of the types of ambiguity that exists in like academic pursuit of knowledge around like it's a conversation where we're all building on things is then becomes like the hole that you exploit if you're like making the other argument. And then also that if we react to that by saying like, there is never, there was no problems, right? No problems at all in whatever election, then as soon as someone finds the exception, they can be like, well, what about, right? And then combined with that, you know, like one of the things that um, at least my research has shown is that you know, we think of like even places where like nobody is using their real names is like, that's so sort of different, right? Like it's not the real world. But if like you go back to that place every day or three times a week for like a year and you're talking to those people, those people become information sources for you, right? And every place I've looked at, people will be like, I don't understand what's happening in, you know, Iraq. I, the news is confusing. And then people will come in and be like, well, here's what's happening. Or, you know, 
people are talking about Dominion voting machines. I don't under, you know, and then someone will answer. And the, if that person is like a pseudonym that they've seen a lot, or is some someone in a community in which there's like strong sense of like we, um, people will trust those answers. And you see the same thing in the parenting groups where people come in. There's so many questions about medical issues. Like my kid's rash, should I be worried? You know, well, I don't why know. Why don't they just ask a doctor? I mean, why don't they ask their doctor? Why don't people just read the New York Times or the Washington Post or just watch PBS and listen to NPR? Like, I don't, it's not like it's some great big, I mean, no, I mean, I really struggle with this. Like people are, like you said, Dominion voting machines. Like, you know, if PBS and NPR are not running a story on it, it's probably not true. Like if it's so important and such a big deal, they're gonna run a story on it eventually, right? Like nobody's gonna sit on that story if it's true. So if you don't hear it from the quote unquote mainstream media, it's because it's not, it's made up. Like it's not true. I think though, if you're in the you know right places, people are like, you know, that you don't trust the. There's all this like undermining of trust, right? So we don't trust the mainstream media. So why would we trust them? And like, whatever person's talk show on YouTube is like arguing that there's something fishy going on or whatever. And you know, so that's like I feel like that. You know, you're articulating like my feelings about it, but that's like our bias, right? Is that. Um, we like trust those sources and you know i think we should right but um if you're someone who already doesn't then saying that they should is not i mean this is the the part that's so hard is like you how do you cause people to trust the media again and trust the government you know and especially if we're talking about groups that have real reasons not to trust those those act entities right it's super hard and i think like i mean this is the thing about uncertainty right like with the parenting groups it's like I think there is like, I like to use that as an example because unlike the Dominion voting machines where it's just real clear, um, there's a lot of stuff there that there is a lot of ambiguity about, like a lot of stuff where we just, you know, there's just like not a clear answer. Your doctor doesn't have an answer because there is no answer for how to get a, a baby under the age of one and a half to sleep, right? There's just no single answer. Yeah. And that, that ambiguity, I think like can wash into other topics. So the same thing with like, you know, the voting machines, you know, after 2016, everyone was talking about how insecure they were because they were right, but they fixed a lot of that stuff. But, you know, the, the uncertainty like feeds the feeds that sort of like um, those narratives that are working to undermine trust and things that we, we just really need to trust. The other thing is, you know, I mentioned Rush Limbaugh who passed away this week. I think one of the things that's so interesting is you know, for a couple of years, I always sort of thought of the online echo chamber as really different than the radio TV echo chamber, but they they really rely on each other for survival, right? Like, I mean, Rush Limbaugh's radio show was still very, very, very popular until he, until he stopped doing it. You can sort of imagine, um, you know, Glenn Beck, other people sort of being the early versions of having your own YouTube channel, particularly as you're able to um, claim, you, you know, local airwaves and, and things like that to spread your show. Trump himself was a TV personality, right? Like he sort of is the master of Twitter, um, but really became famous in TV. And, and even on January 6th, it was sort of both something that was organized online, but also something that was happening in, in real time. And so one of the issues I struggle with is then thinking about the role of traditional non-digital media and how it's both amplifying what goes on in the online space. It's reflecting some of what's going on, but it's also reporting on it too. Like if my parents did know something about Dominion or 4chan or the rest of it, it's probably because they would read that information or hear a story in the New York Times or NPR or something like that. 
And so it's like, it, there's this weird competition at the same time, they seem very symbiotic. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, there's a, a great scholar who talks about this in a lot of her work. Her name's Whitney Phillips. The ways in which the online places we think of as like fringe, you know, are actually like reflective of and part of that bigger media ecosystem um, and are responsive to it in some ways. And then also the ways um, she has this big report out about how to talk, basically like how journalists think about the way they reported on fringe sites like, um, you know, like 4chan um, after 2016, when there was that rhetoric around like, you know, trolls on the internet got Trump elected essentially, that um, there was a lot of sort of sensationalizing of those places and, um, you know, sort of like looking at, look at this weird, you know, weird thing that we should all, you know, it's so shocking, but then that sort of um, ways in which people talk, like report on it can then cause people actually can serve as recruiting. And if you look at the ways in which, you know, journalists have handled, um, you know, things like, um, you know, white supremacist move movements in the early 80s or other types of panics, like social panics, like the satanic panic. Satanic panic, yeah. Yeah, like that there's, there are ways in which um, journalists were, would engage with that material that was actually a bit different than today in which our media environment has changed so dramatically, right? Where even like the big, big sources are, are struggling in comparison to what things were like for them before, right? Like everyone's chasing advertising money and clicks and that can cause to be the first to put something out and that can cause, um, you know, a, a sort of looking at some of these like, um, you know, exotic sort of like exotic online spaces or sort of fringe, fringe ideas or theories. But um, so absolutely. And there's been research that has um, shown like um, news stories um, that appear say in like the super fringe right and then sort of move their way into more mainstream um, sources is like they, the framing is sort of like figured out as it moves into the more mainstream. So I, you're absolutely right. I think that they're, they're all like, it's, it's you know, it's not separate. You know, people have sometimes in the past like talked about them as separate things, but they actually aren't separate at all. And um, and that's important because like, I think the studies still show like most people still say they're getting their news from like the nightly news on ABC, CBS and NBC. There's still a lot of people who get news from talk radio, um, you know, as well as now like things like social media. So Jessica, let me ask you, what is QAnon? Who is Q? What is Q? Where are these people? Why are they showing up? What does Q mean? And I also, we had a, we had a question from Leo in Georgia. Um, on QAnon specifically, um, are, are the people that started on QAnon, are they people that basically got sucked in because they thought they were heroes, right? Wasn't the original myth about child sex trafficking or whatever, so that there are people who may go onto these sites with, with um, legitimate motivations to try to do something good and then they kind of get sucked into the lie. Yeah, so um, QAnon is essentially a conspiracy theory that came out of 4chan and 8chan or infinity chan 8 kun um that is it um, always divisible by four is there like a 12 chan and a 16 chan <laughs> yeah there's always it's almost always like a number and a chan so the first chan was like two chan it's a japanese oh, 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 okay. channel then okay 4chan was started by a guy named christopher Poole when he was 15 or 16 
And then the then we see, but it's the platform is open source. So anyone, you can start your own chan. In the past, there's been like 7chan was another big one, 420chan, 711chan. I'd only uh, have prime numbers for my chan. So <laughs> well, you can plan, plan your chan. Sometimes people <laughs> will put use the same platform but have like a different name, but mostly oh, okay. they follow the like that. number, the number. Um but it's not the format. I don't know if I wouldn't recommend that anybody go to 4chan, but they all look the same. They have the same, um, they're using the same platform. So um, image board system. So people, a guy, a person, individual named Q was dropping these stories, these pieces of information. The idea was that Q was somehow working in government that, um, um, Donald Trump is sort of like the savior, sort of a savior figure who um, is going to clean out all different kinds of bad things, but, but particularly that there's all kinds of sort of um, pedophiles working in all levels of government and in Hollywood. Um, and um, the story, there's like, it's this very complex how, so how is this different than McCarthyism in the 50s? I mean, that was exactly what McCarthyism, right? It started with the Hollywood list and then it was everybody in the State Department and the government. This is actually, it's a great, I asked my parents the other day. So um, they're a little too young. They would have been little kids then, but just, you know, like how did the country repair itself after that, right? After the Red Scares. So I asked them that after January 6th, like if these people like who really believe that like Tom Hanks is somehow some major figure in these like child, you know, trafficking rings, like how do how do we come back from that sort of like reds under beds, right? Um, and they kind well, of the, like, we don't know. <laughs> well, here's the thing though, Jessica, just like just small thing. Some people in Hollywood were actually communists though. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, like they were politically, they were Marxists. Like they were just very far left. Now, the, so, but people can be communist and legally in this country, that's okay, that's not illegal. So, I mean, it, it all became, you know, obviously a witch hunt, but there were actually people who were leftist and then it kind of spiraled. And, and so there was like a kernel of truth there and then it spiraled into, oh, there's this huge plot to overthrow the government and take over the world, which that was never true. Well, and I think, you know, we do also have not, okay, not that there's some sort of vast, you know, pedophile, I don't know, network throughout all positions of power, not just in the United States, actually, the theory is it's all around the world. Um, but we do have like Jeffrey Epstein, right? And yeah. this sort of connection to all these major political figures, right? And so, and people in Hollywood. And so again, like, I think it's, you know, there's this- Well, Me Too, you know, all the things that come out of Me Too, you know, yeah. The, yeah so yeah, I, okay, so you're right. And, and maybe that's kind of what Leo's question is about too. It's like. Are, are people are people engaging with this at the outset with a legitimate concern for something like child sex trafficking or pedophilia and then they then that leads to you know showing up at a pizza place to 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 yeah. save children or something like that well and so, it's like a primal fear right like nobody i mean people are really afraid and for good reason of of this is sort of like the worst boogeyman we can imagine right and um, and it's also one that's the threat is all, you know, you don't know who it could be. And it's, you know, been that idea has also been politicized in a lot of different ways over time. And that at least like, if you look at say, um, there was like the spread of sort of like QAnon light, people were calling it other like pink QAnon, which I really disliked, but, um, across, um, like wellness, like women, right. Women's spaces where women are the sort of predominant audience online wellness 
gurus on Instagram and through parenting groups. And the, the, the piece that was really mobilizing people was the sort of save the children piece. Um, and um, you see people showing up at like rallies in other countries, you know, under this banner of like save the children. So I, I think like that part, like that you can get into like, there's a great Twitter account actually that's sort of breaking down the various elements of QAnon. It's called Q Project, I think. And then tying them back to sort of like um, conversations that were happening in 4chan um, before. So sort of like unpacking the roots of these, this fictionalized, like basically this long collaborative story that's been going on. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the mobilizing thing is this idea about um, child, child exploitation. And I think, yeah, people do wanna feel like they're doing something meaningful. I think that um, that's, you know, you see a lot of, um, in some of the other movements, you know, when people connect their action to a political action to like broader political articulation, you often see them attaching it to these like big ideas, right? Like we just saw with the Wall Street Bets thing in on Reddit where, people were talking about how they were like striking back for like the working class basically, right? Like people attach what they're doing to these big ideas. You're talking about the GameStop thing? On, yeah, on, yeah, yeah. I think like this similar here, right? Like, yeah, people wanna feel like they're doing something, but also, you know, people, if you already are like in a situation where you don't trust um, things, you know, like it's a nuclear bomb of don't trust, right? Like that the articulation of that. And I think there's research that shows that if you believe in one conspiracy, you're more likely to believe in other ones as well. Um, well, one of the things that's interesting, Jessica, is I think it was a couple weeks ago, I'm, I'm trying to remember who the actress was, but I think it was an SNL sketch where it's a Caucasian woman in like very clearly upper, upper middle class house, some, like somewhere in the suburbs, you know, very polite sitting there with like her glass of wine or tea or whatever. And she's like a QAnon supporter. Right, and and it's it's surprising. And then if you look on January sixth, th those were not all people from a certain type of demographic background, right? It wasn't. First of all, it wasn't all men. It you know it wasn't people just they were necessarily rural. It wasn't people who were poor. You know the types of people that are you know the this idea of like the twenty year old in his parents' basement, or you know some guy out in the village somewhere who has nothing else going on. It's like no, a lot of the people that are engaging in this are come from all manner of demographic backgrounds that may surprise most people in terms of who they think like online trolls are or who they think are likely to um, be seeking out this type of connection with people, right? Like it could be, it literally could be your neighbor next door, wherever you live. Like it, there, there's no obvious demographic pr predictor of the type of people who go on and engage in this type of thing. And that to me is very interesting. I think there is one though, and that is they're mostly white, right? So there's one, the, most of that crowd were white. And so I think that the, maybe then the unifier is not, you know, class or um, urban, rural, it's, it's something about white, like toxic whiteness in this country. For QAnon specifically, you mean? Yeah, well, or just in, like I'm thinking of the, the people Boys, on January yeah. 6th. Yeah, yeah the yeah. people showing up there. So yeah. QAnon, I don't know that, I haven't, the demographics of QAnon, I don't, I feel like we're still kind of unpacking that, right? Like there's definitely like um, some stuff that shows that there's a relationship with like evangelical Christianity and the uptake of QAnon. And we've certainly seen people out there with their QAnon signs. Um, there's been like that movement through like spaces 
our communities that are like more um, dominated by women, um, like the wellness and the parenting groups. Um, uh, I guess, I don't know. There's all the Trump supporters. They started showing up at his rallies. And most of the stuff I've seen there are mostly white, white people, but that also might mean that we just don't know yet. So in your book, Expect Us, Online Communities and Political Mobilization, you you actually look at all different types of cyber communities, not just the ones we've mentioned today or in relation to you know, what would become January 6th, um, but how different types of online communities are politically mobilized and how they matter to real world politics. Besides kind of what we've seen with January 6th and the MAGA crowd in QAnon, what are the other groups that have you worried, maybe examples from other countries, um, and, and how would you characterize that? Uh, is it just an extension of what's going on here or are there some fundamental differences in how people are actually coordinating politically in real life, but driven, but uh, filtered through uh, online coordination? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I, uh, so, so when I was doing the research for that book, it was I started doing it in 2007, and then I finished in 2011, and then I redid more research as I was like that sort of leading up into the book being published. And so one of the things that um, in those the early days of the research I've, I was finding and sort of kept saying was at every place I look where there's more than like a few people, even if the topic is something like video games, at the time there was a lot of video game stuff um there still is but um people will start talking about things that either are directly about politics or have significance to politics so they might start out being seemingly not related but they end up sort of coming back to questions about that have political relevance like an example i've used a lot is you know arguments about like britney spears um is she still hot like would turn into questions about like her as a mother and like what it was appropriate behavior for women right so so sometimes it's not, not like at all about her talent as a singer or dancer or right, artist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, these are like to be deeply, clear. <laughs> deeply sexist. A lot of the places I say were like deeply misogynistic places. So that caveat too. But then there would also be like direct conversations about politics too. You know, like someone like saying like, we don't want, you know, you see the conversations track what's happening outside. So people being like, oh, we don't want to have socialized medicine like they do in Canada and like Canadians coming in being like, actually, we think it's pretty great. And so then you would have these conversations that are like more like like traditional policy conversations. And that happens in literally, I've never seen a space where there you don't see those types of conversations happening. I think the puzzle for me in the, the book, but also just generally is like, when do those conversations then like become something that is articulated as political where people start doing things like filling out petitions or even more like going out and protesting. And my interest is often in the places that appear, they're just online, right? They appear to be disconnected from, you know, traditional activist groups or, um, you know, there's been a lot of great research on things like Black Lives Matters and the ways in which, um, you know, activists were using like Twitter, for instance, to like articulate, um, articulate um, their platform and also alter, offer alternative sort of um, visions of the world from what was in the same mainstream media, as well as like very effective protest movement on the ground. Um, and I, that work is extremely important. Um, but I'm always interested in like, no activists, just a lot of strange people in one place talking to each other, and then they end up, um, you know, attacking the Capitol building, right? Um, so I, one of the things, though, is like, 
that those, the tools themselves are somewhat, they're not neutral exactly, but they're somewhat neutral, right? Like you can see a left-wing, left-wing um, uh, movement organizing and um, emerging. You can see right-wing ones organizing and emerging. And that is the case um, in the United States. In other places, it's gonna depend on like the configuration of like government regulation of social media and internet services. And you know, how many people have access to those things, um, how they access those things, there's a lot of factors that are gonna come into play. Um, but one of the things that I think that um, is this sort of emerging policy question in the United States that is gonna, that also is an emerging policy question, I should say in other places, but what happens here is gonna impact everywhere is this question of how should those platforms, the big ones like Facebook and um, Twitter and YouTube, um, and you know, Facebook owns Instagram, right, and WhatsApp, how should they consider this type of um, conversation, right? Anti-vaccine conversation, voter fraud conversation, the QAnon stuff, should they, traditionally they have tried to argue that they're somewhat a neutral platform, right? That they, and they are, they're privately owned spaces so they can control the content how they want. They're protected by section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which um, says they're sort of pipelines, stuff flows through them. Um, but we're starting to see um, a lot of, on both the left and the right, people not liking those that. And we also see that they have enormous power, right? So they deplatformed Trump. They um, kicked out tons of QAnon um, uh, accounts. Um, and then not only that, not only the sort of top level social media, right? Like Facebook and Twitter, we also see um, Apple and Google kicking them off of their um, their, the app stores. We see Amazon Web Services kicking Parler off and they wouldn't host them anymore, which really hurt Parler. We see like the email marketing platform that Trump was using, kicking him off, right? So, and essentially taking away a whole lot of ways for those groups to have, to find the audience that they need to recruit. And the plat here in the United States has become, you know, we're having this conversation about should they do that, right? Should they be able to do that? But in other parts of the world, you know, Facebook right now in Myanmar, for instance, which is a case both of us care a lot about, right? Facebook is has essentially said that they're going to protect the speech of the protesters there. Um, they've suspended the government's ability to request um, information about accounts, um, takedowns. This is a very like and Facebook is like the platform there, right? Like, so Facebook as an actor has a lot of power in that space and the ways in which the United States government decides it's gonna govern Facebook here in the United States is probably gonna impact what Facebook can do in other places. So, um, so but I'm always like Facebook to me, I think is interesting, but also, you know, all of these other websites, right? Like Reddit, for instance, is huge, huge platform. You know, what kind of organizing is happening there, right? I think that, um, they're harder to study this in some ways, but there's a lot that's happening where we're probably going to see more. Let me let me play devil's advocate on one position. Victor Minaldo, um, who's at UW with me, we wrote about this recently, where you know we we have talked a lot on various podcasts and written on Section Two Thirty, but let me let me ask you about Parler, and an argument that Victor and I make is. <clears throat> You know, progressives love to talk about the importance of decriminalizing drugs because, you know, any kind of narcotic drug use is going to produce something like social harm, right? There's going to be public health expenditures that have to go towards people consuming um, narcotic drugs. 
if you make those drugs illegal, you now have additional negative externalities that cause social harm. Like you have violence from cartels, you have turf wars and all the rest of it, you have exploitation of people. And so, you know, the, the push for decriminalization is to take away as many negative externalities from the consumption of drugs as possible. If you ban all, you know, these users on these platforms and they effectively have no other way to make themselves known, will there not be some wild, wild west equivalent of them basically creating then their own platforms or their own web services that host these things that are going to be, you know, like cartel violence, so much worse, um, both in terms of their content and the social harm that they produce in the world, precisely because they're not being regulated the way you would think about if drugs were decriminalized, the process by which, you know, people are, if they're found with drugs or whatever, would be there, it would be regulated in such a way, right? So if you outlaw it, I mean, Parler is going to reopen, right, with their own, you know, techno, whatever, you know, whiz kids, some way to host that platform. Could that actually make it worse? And you so, know, I mean, and then if the answer is yes, then what, what, how do you go back to, how then do you kind of answer the question that you raised, which is then how would platforms like Facebook both regulate the worst excesses of QAnon or Trump at the same time as not totally deplatforming them? Yeah, I guess. So I think I, I would say maybe. So um, I think, so the, those platforms, I mean, first of all, those platforms are all commercially owned. They're like for-profit platforms, right? So the companies themselves have an interest in curtailing things that will hurt their business, right? And um, I would probably argue that that is why ultimately they took action against, after a long time against um, certainly QAnon. Trump, I don't know, that's a little more complicated. Um, uh, it's a little more complicated, but um, so they have a, a vested interest in um, maintaining good public opinion of them as a product. That's not the case if you're, say, Parler, right? Parler, their market is much different and much smaller than, say, Facebook's, like much smaller. So they are marketing themselves to a particular um, set of people, and that set of people is somewhat bounded, right? It's not they maybe can grow somewhat, but they're not going to be able to grow to be the size of Facebook because for two reasons. One is, is that people are going to go to Parler or, or other places like that because they want to be in the place where the conversations are happening around um, this sort of articulation of the right, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that places that are started by like free speech activists have another characteristic that um, I think is going to complicate what... Um, uh, the right, right, sort of more mainstream right people are able to do in those spaces. And that is, is that they usually have like a massive pornography problem in quotes. I, so because the free speech thing both uh, means that um, you can say whatever, right, as a political figure or someone who's involved in a political movement, it also means that all other kinds of people are going to come in and use that space in that way. And that is something that looks really bad in headlines for say people who want to run for office and recruit people out of those fringes to vote for them. So that's the first thing I think um, the, we'll see what happens. We've seen a lot of these sort of fringe platforms sort of rise and fall. Like, you know, not that long ago, MeWe was like the big one. Maybe I think it's sort of back now, but then there were all these articles about their pornography problem and they kind of like diminished in um, prominence. 
Um, the other thing is, is that um, absolutely, you know, the, the idea that you can take anything off the internet is not, is basically kind of ludicrous, right? Like they've tried with 8chan, um, 8chan keeps coming back. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can host a website. Um, and there's also, you can the, go to the sort of ultimate haven of um, free speech, which is the dark net, right? And um, where you have to, um, to access most of that stuff, the main dark net is, is through Tor. You have to have some technical ability to be able to do that. And then nobody's gonna you know, come in and tell you what you can or can't do as long as you aren't breaking sort of federal laws, right? So, um, so I think what you remove from say um, a particular conspiracy theorist or a particular political figure by removing them from the platform is the ability to effectively recruit um, and disseminate your message. And um, if what you are, and I think this is where it gets tricky, right? Like it is true that if you have um, a political figure on Twitter or Facebook and they're putting out sort of extremist content, those platforms then are going to mod moderate in relationship to that extremist content, and but maybe allow some other content to remain. Um, but that doesn't also mean that you're not gonna be on Parler, right? Where you're gonna be speaking to your base. Um, your base is still gonna hear it. Um, but it does mean that people like one of my relatives maybe won't be exposed to those ideas and like recruited into that way of thinking. And I don't know, you know, honestly, um, I, I thought it was the right decision to, to not to kick Trump off Twitter and Facebook when they did. He had violated their terms of service so many times at that right. point. Yeah. Um, not just him, but other, he, there's other world leaders that do too, Bolsonaro. I mean, there's, right? And they, those companies are in a bind, right? They kick them off and then they might be in trouble in those places. Um, but I think the, that second question, the one that you know, you're raising is a much more complex one. Like it's this question about like, what do we do with this? terrible content. And there's like people who are uh, making money off of, you know, putting it out there. Like, do we deplatform them? Um, or, you know, do we remove the ways in which they can, you know, make money on these bad ideas, um, dangerous ideas? Um, do we remove their ability to recruit? Um, or, you know, knowing that they're going to go to places where they're going to be less moderated? Um, you know, I think that personally, this is like not academic, this is me personally, I think removing the ability to um, sort of do widespread recruiting diminishes societal harm. Um, but I think, you know, people who talk about like getting, you know, beating, making the internet like sort of this clean, happy space, that's super unrealistic. And is, is um, that in fact is like, we're heading towards like a da that's dangerous territory. Like what, how do we define that? You know, I would have a lot of worries about that. So Jessica, let me end by asking you about deprogramming, which is now kind of the big buzzword. So I think you just talked about one type of deprogramming, which is you have John Q. Relative, who before January 6th sort of can, you know, see Trump on Twitter, QAnon, is able to go on Parler because it's it's readily available, right? Like your, your older uncle, right? Once those are deplatformed or once those are taken off, you know, if your uncle is sort of, you know, just kind of normal every day, like is on the internet, not looking at the dark web or anything like that, they would be deprogrammed because they would effectively then not be recruited into these uh, ecosystems, for, for lack of a better word. What, but what about the second part of that, which is, okay, now John Q. Uncle is no longer on Parler, doesn't read Trump's Twitter and the rest of it. Can you deprogram the things that they have believed up until that point? Can you like get them then to 
if they're not going to do, if they're not going to, if, if not every you know person who was on QAnon is going to go through the difficulty of trying to find wherever Parler is going to be next, is there a way to deprogram all, yeah, all the lies and conspiracies that they've believed up until that point? Or are those people just like always going to find a way? Like there's no ever true deprogramming even after deplatforming. Oh man, I don't know, James, what do you think? That's, a, that's such a hard question. Well, I can tell you, I mean, I can tell you what I think some of the social science evidence suggests, um, right? So the, the, this idea of deprogramming comes from cults, for, from cult members and cults are um, analogous in certain ways. You know, most cults end either through mass suicide or the government somehow responds and it's a baptism of fire, but not necessarily of their own doing, but they're doing things that are rampantly criminal or illegal and the government comes after them and then they die that way. Think of Branch Davidians, um, things like that. Or they become mainstream, they become the new religion, um, in which case there's no deprogramming. Um, but people have looked at the types of people, particularly for cults that have existed for numerous decades, like uh, you're probably a big fan of Heaven's Gate, uh, just since they were the internet invented, you know, they were the first sort of like internet uh, mobilized cult, but they had actually been, you know, they had been around since the seventies and they look at people who left. Um, so people who were effectively deprogrammed. And I think that would give you some hope that you can deprogram, that once you sort of take them out, once people are not in the room with these people, once they realize some of the, the worst excesses of what the cult is doing, whether it's exploiting children or you know, a, you know, somebody like uh, David Koresh, you know, having multiple sexual partner, you know, once they realize that it's a bad thing and they're able to leave because you have to physically be separated from the cult, yeah, there, you can deprogram people. You know, and 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 there is evidence to suggest that, um, but but I think you know the the degree to which it happens, how it happens, I think we're much less clear about that. But yeah, once you take the thing away from people, sometimes people will reform. The problem is, is that, I mean, the problem with cults is it always has to be there. They have to do that. They have to find that inner source of strength to do it. In this case, if we're talking about deplatforming Trump or, or getting rid of Parler, you're sort of forcing that for them. And I, you know, I don't know whether that's going to cause a negative reaction or that's going to, you know, a lot of people woke up on January 7th and were like, oh my God, what have I been reading for the past two years? Like, this is not, this is crazy. You know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. But I, I would suggest that there is some evidence suggestive of the ability to deprogram people who have been brainwashed. It's interesting. I had a, a supervisor research project in 2015. So um, for like an external, something we do with our students, sometimes we have, get these research tasks from external um, actors and then we do research for them. So it's 2015, pre-2016. Um, it was about extremism online and it was focused on ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And they, the, one of the things they asked us was to look into the effectiveness of counter narrative. So counter narratives is a, a method that um, social media companies in particular were interested in when they were very worried that the, um, the radicalization that was happening was ISIS, right? Getting people to move, you know. Um, and, you know, I had this great team of students and, you know, we looked at all these different instances of counter narratives and essentially what we found was no, like there's no, there that people would put these programs. So kind of counter narrative program is like, sometimes they're government run. So they'll be like, you know, what that person says, no, like, no, that's wrong. Instead, this is true. Or, um, 
you know, uh, sort of trying to like uh, break down sets of beliefs. Um, in many cases, those programs were put into place and then no one ever evaluated their success. The only one that my students could find, and so that, and that, and the, this is important because one of the ideas that was circulating at the time is, is that you would just, you would put up like advertising that basically said, you know, no, what ISIS is saying is bad and that that would maybe help dissuade people. Um, it was sort of anti-gang deep counter narratives where it was much more embedded in communities with like a whole set of array of um, things attached to it, not just a sort of singular message, right? Like, you know, President Trump was wrong about voter fraud, right? It was sort of like, um, the other thing that, that they found that was effective was that instead of having some sort of official body like the government or, you know, Google or whatever put out a counter narrative was actually to pick up other online content that um, something that Google did, other online content that they hadn't made and actually algorithmically feed it to people who were looking for content about ISIS, for instance. So like respected religious leaders, for instance, talking about how ISIS was, you know, whatever, an abomination of, of faith or whatever. So um, anyway, so I, I so my, my concern though is, is that when we're talking about, um, you know, there's like voter fraud, right? This is like, in some ways very simple, but it's like attached to these bigger political currents in the country that I don't know how, like we can take Trump off of Twitter. Um, we can like, Dominion can sue every news organization that has falsely reported that their machines were bad. Um, but, you know, there are these like, like much more like rich in the sense that they're multi-stream articulations of, a change in the United States that people see as being terrible, the decline of Christianity, for instance, the, you know, the imposition, quote unquote, of like left coast values, um, sort of loss of like what makes America what it should be. And, you know, Trump was incredibly effective at like channeling those feelings. But I, at least as someone with, um, you know, conservative family, like those ideas were around before, before Trump. And so, um, I, I don't know, like, that's why I asked this question, like you brought up McCarthyism, like how does a country come back from this sort of division and widespread, um, you know, suspicion, particularly when some of the things that are um, happening, you know, should happen, right? Like there should be accountability, you know, for the, you know, racial disparities in this country, for instance. And, um, you know, there's, you know, people are leaving churches for all kinds of reasons, right? So there's, I, I so my concern is like those trends make it hard to deprogram because you're, there's still gonna, you know, even people who, you know, maybe now are not reading whoever on Twitter are still gonna go back and there's gonna be like the guest speaker at their organization about, you know, how Google is left wing. Like I've seen stuff like that. And how do we think about that and counter that? And like, what part of that is the valid political um, you know, engagement and, you know, maybe not engagement that I agree with, but valid political engagement. And then where does it become dangerous? Well, I think the McCarthy, the McCarthy thing and the cult thing make me think of two answers. I think with McCarthy, you know, it was that it wasn't that the have you no decency, sir. Um, yeah. The way you deal with a bully is you punch him in the face harder. I don't mean physically, but I'm saying you don't back down. You got to like overcome the bullying part. You got to show that they're a fraud. You got to show that they're weak. You got to you know, shut them up somehow. And 
and and then and then people are like oh my gosh the emperor has no clothes this guy was a joke or he wasn't he he doesn't have a good argument or he doesn't have a response or he isn't decent you know and it's like you got to stand up to a bully i mean that, that that's the basic lesson and you know i think it's too soon to tell whether you know deplatforming trump or or even impeaching him a second time but not convicting if that's like equivalent to standing up to him maybe it is maybe it's not but until somebody stands, you know, you know, he is going to be a potent force until somebody stands up to him, particularly if no other Republican ever stands up to him. Um, so I think that's number one. Number two on the cult thing is, you know, if you have a really sharp prediction by your deity, whoever it is that you are claiming some sort of uh, divine inspiration, if they create a sharp prediction that turns out not to be true, and, and people are capable of, of seeing that evidence, I think that could suggest some potential for deprogramming. And so, for instance, apocalyptic cults who say, okay, on April 25th, the world is gonna end and then it doesn't end and people are like, oh, okay, well, I guess you were wrong. And Jessica, it was my understanding that a lot of what was going on with January 6th was both that it was gonna be successful, that prediction turned out not to be true, but also correct me if I'm wrong, that on inauguration day, they still thought, even after uh, January 6th, the QAnon folks and the Capitol, they still thought that somehow something was gonna happen on the 20th. Like there was gonna be an angel who descended from heaven who was gonna prevent Joe Biden from taking office. And they had all gotten online together to watch it, right? The inauguration, and then it didn't happen. And my understanding is a lot of them were like, oh my God, Q lied to us. Joe Biden is clearly, I mean, some of them are like, oh my gosh, wait, no, I'm gonna change the prediction, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying everybody believes it. But when there's a sharp prediction that some people see is then empirically not true or they can verify it and see that it's not true, that to me seems to be some avenue potentially for deprogramming. And it, 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 am I wrong in that that's what happened with some QAnon people? Yeah, no, I think that's what I've been seeing, that there was a drop off after January 6th and then there was this sort of you know, like adjustment, right? Like, well, then there's going to be inauguration day and then there was another drop off then too. And um, um, yeah, and then there was also like a rise around that time of, um, you know, like forums talking about how to deprogram basically your QAnon obsessed relative. And there was concern, like there was a lot of the people who study that those sort of places on Twitter, there was sort of this alarm on January 7th that there was going to be mass suicides, you know, because the that sort of myth had given people a lot of, um, you know, sort of meaning in their lives. Um, but there's also, I think, still a core that have just double, you know, just doubled down. But there, I think that the, I don't know, I haven't seen anybody like measure this exactly, but I think you're right, they've been shedding, they're shedding people. I mean, people also forget this country was founded by an apocalyptic cult. Uh, people, Americans call them the pilgrims, but they were called the Puritans. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, you know, that that sort of strain, I think, is true. I think it's true all in all human societies, but it's certainly true in American history that that sort of, um, it's like a, it's an, well, it's it's truly apocalyptic. It's truly millenarian. And it's all, you know, people are on the verge of, of catastrophe. And whether it's the Branch Davidians in Texas or whether it's people online today, I mean, I think even if you deprogram 90%, you're never going to get rid of whatever that human impulse is to join something that's essentially like a cult and to engage in apocalyptic beliefs and practices, even if it means, unfortunately, suicide or unfortunately something like the, the January 6th riot or whatever. Like, it's just, I, I, I don't think you'd ever get rid of it no matter what you do with the internet. Well, and I have, I have this great student who pointed out to me, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought of it, that also everyone's been, you know, online at home now for a year too. So that that might've, 
you know, fed it. People, you know, spending, have free time. They're sick of watching Netflix and they're like reading weird internet forums. I mean, there could be something about the time we're in in that way too, that it's an, it feels like an apocalyptic time as well, right? It does. So, yeah. In a pandemic. Um, yeah, it does. That's true. Well, Jessica Bear, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, James. It's always fun to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Vichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.